Ladies and gentlemen, please be seated. The show is about to begin. Mesdames et messieurs, prenez place. Le spectacle va commencer. Bonne nuit, signores et signores. Sentare pour favor. Le show est à commencer agora. Obrigado. Mommy, she's back. I'm Stephen Ivory from Real Life Magazine, and we're here talking with Bernadette Cooper. Bernadette, how are you? I'm fine, just looking good. That's good, that's good. Mm -hmm. You know, you've been off the scene for a while. Where have you been, incognito or...? No, just kicking back, relaxing, and looking good. Mm -hmm. If you know what I'm talking about, clap your hands. Uh, you know, there's a rumor going around that uh, you have a bit of an attitude. Attitude? Well, if I don't think I'm looking good, nobody's gonna think I'm looking good. Look yeah. good. Uh, well, I can understand that, but why can't you just be nice? Okay, I'm nice. Mm, but what is this thing, this attitude thing, this vibe I get? Why, why don't you explain it to me? <laughs> well, it's something that I really can't explain about. An attitude that you just gotta know. It sort of feels like... Nice. I'm a hell of a girl and I'm loads of fun, but you got to get to know me. To be brutally honest, where I like to be. Anything less, don't expect of me. So here's the real deal. Give it a spill on how I deal with myself on a daily basis. I mean, walking down the street used to be easy, you see. Now people stop and they cruise me. They say, baby, what's your name? Where you going? What's your sign? I say, oh, nothing. Just looking good. And just yesterday, I was strolling in the bank. And everybody had the scared look on their face to my left. Then I goes to my right. And Mr. Bank Robber aimed a special on a Friday night. So I walked up to him because I had nothing to lose. And I guess he observed that I was looking good. He gave me the money. Then he threw down the gun. He said, are you bad, girl? No, I'm going to jail. Who does your hair? I look good. I look good. Every time I walk into the room, that's why right. I look good. I look good. They love me. They hate me. But they all say I look good. I look
three years ago you were responsible for this slap me thing. What is that? That's very passe. I don't yeah. want to do that, but please. But can you do it for us? No, please. Okay, gosh. Slap me, slap me good, baby. I look good. Every time I walk into the room, that's why I look good. I look good. They love me, they hate me, but they all say I look good. Okay, so, um, welcome to Inkstuds, I guess. Um, this podcast is not being host- hosted by Robin. Um, I'm guest hosting it, and I am Zainab Akhtar, and we are talking to Michael DeFord, and that was the most awkward introduction ever. Um, yeah, so hey, Michael. Hello, how's it going? Hi. It's going okay. <laughs> that was terrible, right? No, that was great. Uh, it was alright, I guess. Um, so how are you, man? Um, I'm okay. Yeah, uh, I uh, am sort of bunkering down for December with comics work, so I'm excited about that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the year has ended, and I guess everybody's sort of like, reflecting on it how would you say you like 2015 has been for you uh it was good it was like my busiest year which i suppose i've been saying at the end of most of my years now um yeah which is like probably a good thing overall but uh, i definitely realized this year like i was very excited and grateful to do a lot of the things i did um i started the year with um I, I did. A, I put a lot of work into um, a gallery show I had here in Canada, and um, that took a lot out of me. And uh, I finished some books, some of which uh, came out, and some are coming out um, early next year. And I did got to do a lot of traveling, but I did kind of realize like I definitely overextended myself. So um, I'm trying to uh, make responsible decisions. For 2016. <laughs> and not extend yourself as much. Sorry? I said and not extend yourself as much. Hello? C- can you not hear me, Michael? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, you cut out for a sec. All right. Sorry. <laughs> um, every now and then some words cut out. Oh, I, I don't know. The connection seems... All oh, right. I have like two bars on here, so I hope it's not too bad. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's just my dumb computer. Um, no, no, it's probably mine because it's rubbish. Um, but yeah, I was just going to talk to you about like the gallery show you did. Was that the one in Ottawa? Yeah, it was, um, and it was sort of like on around the same time as TCAF, right? Yeah, it, uh, I think yeah, it came up in April, and then I think was there till June, maybe. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was called All Dogs Are Dogs, and it was at the Saw Gallery, which. Uh, is a space in Ottawa that um, I spent a lot of time in in high school. It was, uh, in addition to being a gallery, um, and a gallery that actually hosted me, I was in a group show that was like my first ever gallery show there when I was 18 or so. Um, 
It's also an all-ages space for um, a lot of punk shows and right. weird kind of right. like zine fairs and community-based stuff. So when I was in high school, I was there usually like a few times a week. So I was pretty happy to uh, be able to, to do something with them. So the stuff that you exhibited in the gallery, was that made specifically for the show? Yeah, it was um, all drawings of uh, dogs, um, like kind of weird looking dogs. Uh, yeah, so I did about 30 or so drawings, large drawings for it, um, two hanging murals, and then um, I collaborated with uh, an artist from here named Phil Woolham. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And did those like, amazing like dog heads. Yeah, yeah, we made a bunch of weird sculptures. Uh, yeah, and they're they're two of them are uh, wearable. Uh, they're mascot heads, and then another one is just like a large freestanding sculpture. Yeah, because I think um, when I was talking to Robin about like potentially doing this, and um, he was saying that he'd already interviewed you like a couple of times, so I went back and listened to those because I didn't want to like go over you know the same ground again. Um, yeah. And I think one of the first one, I think you were 22. <laughs> it was just before, uh-huh. yeah, like you uh, won the Doug Wright Award. And, um, uh-huh. and I was listening to that and you had like an issue of Lose coming out and you were talking about doing like a group gallery show. And I was and I was just thinking that it's kind of funny because like you had an issue of Lose out this year and you done a gallery show. So it was like parallels, I guess. Yeah, I'm just repeating myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure you're not. Um, we were actually going to, when we were, like, I came to TCAP, like, the first time this year, and um, we really wanted to go to see your show. I came with my friend Oliver, and we were thinking, oh. like, yeah, we were thinking of flying down, but we were only there, I think, about six days, so then it would have, like, it wasn't so much, like, the cost of flying, but the time that it would have taken. Yeah, um, it's like, it's close but close enough that it's super convenient you know like yeah yeah and I, I think there's also like differences between like Canadian close and like British close <laughs> yeah that's definitely true yeah. we're <laughs> we have a lot of space between uh cities here yeah it was like yeah I think one of the one of the things that like really weirded me out like the streets are so long in Canada well in Toronto anyway there's just sort of like the numbers they they numbered up to the like hundreds and they just like straight go on and on and on and it is it really I don't know it's really strange <laughs> oh yeah home. that's interesting. I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of that as a difference but and of course that makes yeah that makes total sense that it would be yeah well I guess um, like places are numbered here but like they're not you know they're not they just don't go like you know like straight like you just yeah. walk on lost and on. So like I guess we're actually the street. I got lost here. all the time in London. Sorry? I said I got lost all the time in London. Oh right, yeah. Cause I think it's probably weirder here because like um it's not straight but the numbers do go up so like you can go left and right. And yeah, it's it's yeah, I guess we're weird. <laughs> Yeah, everything curved a lot, and I would get motion sick in cabs all the time. <laughs> yeah. So I was just thinking about, like, you know, end of years and things like that. Do you set, like, aims and goals for yourself? Or, you know, like, at the beginning of the year, 
or just like even periodically like oh this is the thing I want to do or this is the thing I like want to achieve um a little it's very like super explicit but each year I usually have one or two large projects in mind that um and want to work towards and I sort of have thought of what uh ideally I'd like to spend the bulk of my energy next year doing um but uh I usually think of things more in like a week to week basis uh both cuz things are more manageable that way especially cuz I I do tend to um chip away in small bits at a lot of things at once rather than work all on a single thing like I'll I'll usually have two or three different little projects on the go um so I try I usually tend to like think of things on a week to week basis and just think well like uh in addition to uh the commercial work I do and the my my job and the stuff um like I uh I I'm obligated to do I have like a a set of things where it'll it'll usually be like well this week I should finish three or four comics pages and one or two drawings or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um but you sound like you're really well organized because you're quite prolific. Um so I was just wondering like how what what do you have anything like resembling that typical day? Where uh, Yeah, a typical day is uh I got my day changes a lot. um depending on like sometimes it'll be dependent on what adventure time might need for me or if i have any pending deadlines and that might is like you know those deadlines might involve a book deadline it might involve uh um something i need to get out for patreon or it might involve um illustration but usually it's uh i separate commercial work and um adventure time work uh from my comics work and I'll try to do if I if it can be helped I try to do the comics work in the afternoon and evening and the uh commercial work in the morning. Okay. And I wake up pretty early and um and I don't mind staying up pretty late to uh finish stuff if uh if uh I need to <laughs> yeah. So you're pretty like motivated then, because I know like I I get <laughs> like that's one of the things I struggle with. It's not like the ideas or the wanting to do it, but it's just sort of like just constantly being like you know like from on a day to day basis, like do this, do this, do this. Yeah, I try to like hold myself to a pretty rigorous schedule. Um, I'm not as I used to be like a little crazy about it. Um, and I used to I used to have like a much worse i i i don't have great sleep cycles currently or in general but i used to, it used to be like really bad so i'd always be awake and always be working and um i and especially when i was first starting out around like lose issues 1 and 2 and 3 uh i was like super unhealthy about it um and how much i was pushing myself and now i think like Yeah, I hold myself to a rigorous schedule, but I still like have time to be a human being and see my friends and eat properly and um so I think I think right now I'm I don't know if I have a a great balance, but it's like more balanced than I have been historically. Yeah. 
Um, I actually, um, in the name of research, <laughs> um, I was like, um, you're in a band, right? Hello? I am. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, uh, with um, uh, Patrick and Kyle. Yeah, yeah, is, is it Creep Highway? Creep Highway. Yeah, we are I, I, not... I, I'm yeah. not into music at all, so I couldn't tell whether it was good or bad. But it's I probably, did watch a video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably bad. I suspect we're a good band. Uh, I, I I don't know what what do they call that? Hello? Is, it, is is it noise metal? Hello? Yeah, I guess. Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, there might be a, there maybe there's a delay in the feed, but um. Uh, yeah, we're like a, I guess like a punk band or a noise punk band. Um, yeah, no, nobody really likes our band. No, I'm sure they do, but like, I, it's kind of intriguing to me because like, I've never come across it. So like, what's like, what, what's the concept behind like noise metal? Can you just like make any kind of noise? <laughs> yeah, well, like we still kind of have songs and structure but right. um like it was it uh we we used to be in a, a garage band together right. um with some other people and we sort of splintered off um and it was just it like a lot of the music um the two of us listened to growing up uh was that and um uh a lot of um a lot of like uh that scene growing up kind of fed into uh, the art I was influenced by. Um, a lot of the posters and record covers uh, that were really big influences on me kind of came out of that scene um, in high school and in uh, college. So, uh, so yeah, so it was just like, so it's like a thing we, we you know, we don't like take super seriously just because we, um, we, don't have very much time like both of us spend more of our time drawing comics yeah. um than we do uh and we can we can afford to uh to spend time practicing but um uh yeah i think it like part of starting it was like this was we wanted to to make um music that maybe uh had a similar tone to the stuff we we came up with yeah growing up so have you known Pat? You and Patrick known each other a long, a long time then. Yeah, I guess um, we both. I've probably known him for like uh, maybe like seven years now or something. Seven or eight years. Okay. Uh, uh, we both became aware of each other. I became aware of like Wowie Zonk um, uh, as soon as they started making work, and um, his partner, Jeanette LaPalm, was a member of Wowie Zonk, too, and I'd known her through LiveJournal, um, even from before I was in Toronto. Um, but yeah, I find, like, Toronto is a nicely, uh, a nicely close-knit comics and zine community or something. Like, a, a lot of the the people I work with and collaborate with um, are people who have been around here for years and people like I've known for years, really. Yeah, I always think it must it must be nice to have that because like when I was when I was growing up, I mean, there's sort of like I guess there's some things like that in Leeds, but not there's not really a huge arts community and certainly not a huge comics community. 
Um, but I guess it helps to have that because then if you want to do something related to it, um, it's easier. Yeah, um, and uh, it's like I feel a little spoiled sometimes because uh, the Beguiling as a store and TCAF as a festival is like very supportive of um, the cartoonists who live here. And it's definitely helped uh, to have that sort of support, even if I didn't have the friends I do. Um, it provides the comic scene here with um, a very particular type of infrastructure. And I've seen it a little bit in other cities that also have very good supportive stores. Like Quimby's seems like a store that um, maybe is a similar type of a pillar in the Chicago comics community. Um, so yeah, it helps. It helps that there's uh, something like that, and um, yeah, and it even helps that like yeah, like uh, Jezjeet Gill is uh, an artist from here who now is more known for running color code printing, who resograph a ton of zines like in and outside of Toronto. And I think like yeah, that's someone I've known like ever since I moved here, and um, and is now like doing this incredible thing and publishing and printing. Um, so yeah, it's like made a lot of things uh, easier for me than if I was just, I'm sure if I had to, I would just be hacking it out on my own, but I feel grateful that I haven't had to. Yeah. Cause I, I, I mean, like I think about like if I had wanted to do anything like that and I would not have known like where to start. <laughs> um, <laughs> So to have like that base is sort of I guess super helpful. Um, I'm just taking my notebook for questions. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, this was something I wanted to ask you. Um, somebody actually mentioned this on Twitter as well. What is sort of like um, how much do you factor in like when you're making things or when you're you know writing drawing um. Obviously, you do it for yourself, and because you have either like an idea or something you want to talk about, or just something that you want to put out. Um, but like, how much do you factor in like an audience, and what you're making for an audience, and how much of it is for yourself? If you if you think about that at all, uh, it's sort of funny because I do think about it, but um, like I never want to feel like I'm just talking to myself but then when I think of the audience I think of it like it's a bunch of different versions of me maybe <laughs> like uh I always want to make the type of work I want to read yeah so I always think that my audience member is is like a bunch of variations of me um so it is it's kind of weird I hope I never get too insular with my work um but uh I think it becomes a little difficult to to think of a hypothetical audience too much um, mm. like I uh, I want to speak to people but it's impossible to know who you're speaking to and how you're gonna be read so I try to be thoughtful and interesting and responsible and all the things that all the uh, about all the decisions you make when you're drawing something that you don't know who is going to read um but yeah it's hard to just i find it i find i get tripped up if i just try to guess um what my audience 
reaction is going to be. Because I'm usually, I'm frequently like surprised and interested in in hearing some of the reactions and interpretations, um, uh, even if they're very different from what my initial intent was. Like that's part of the whole thing. And um, if I thought about it too much beforehand, I'd probably get tripped up, or I'd probably be. Um, disappointed by misinterpretations, which I don't want to be. I want to be like open to um, those uh, that type of interaction, or it's not maybe maybe not interaction, but whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, and I would think that like I've, I've always thought the more you think about like how an audience is, or, or you get you know how somebody's going to read your work potentially, and the more you get caught up in that, it sort of changes, or if you attempt to cater to it to an extent, it changes what you're doing, um, and it doesn't like retain like the pureness of where you started from and what you were going to do, and I think that sort of dilutes the power of the work or or what what its intended meaning was. Um, yeah, I always find that. Because this is a really weird thing, a really shitty example, but um, I remember reading. Do you know who who's the director of um, the Six Sense? Uh, it, oh, like uh, yeah, he did Unbreakable. I forget his name. Yeah, and and that Shyamalan, I think. Oh yeah, 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 um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I remember him saying like um, like because he's fat. Most of his films have been like really big flops and quiet rubbish. And um, I remember him saying that, well, if I change, I can't, you know, like you can't change. Like he was criticized like, after every rubbish film he made. And he was like, well, I can't, I can't have people coming in and saying to me that, oh, you know, change it like this. And then the next person comes in and says, oh, we'll change it like this. And then the next person comes in and says, change it like this. Because it's never going to retain my vision. I mean, it's not the best yeah. example because his vision is crap. <laughs> but, yeah, and it's like, a, um, I I want to be, uh, I I think like it's important that work have a life of its own after you finish it, and mm-hmm. um, it's like it's nice to be surprised by that after. I guess I try to be surprised. We were just talking about, like, reactions to your work. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, I guess um, it's, uh, yeah, it's funny, too, because I also have now intentionally tried to not read reviews of my own work as much. Um, But it is, like, it has been nice and usually very interesting to see what people think and be surprised by, uh, yeah, surprised by whatever they read into it, um, or read into me, uh, yeah. Okay, so you, so you did used to read reviews, like, what, what did you used to, like, get from them, just sort of, like, just to see how stuff was received? Yeah, I was just, um, I was mostly just curious, the same way, like, I mean, I, I think it'd be impossible to not be curious. Uh, yeah. I never trust um, people who say that, oh, I don't read reviews. Yeah, and like it's really I've been trying to actively stop and it's really hard not to because like uh uh yeah, like people are 
are talking about you. No, you, of course you want to know what's being said. Um, but I'm a little better about it uh, now, just because, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't want to get, like, too tripped up by it. And I realized, you know, reading reviews isn't always the same as um, just, like, some... Uh, I, I think it is really. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Sure. I mean, thing. Um, because like I, I, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I never get um too hung up on what someone says, whether it's positive or negative or neutral. I guess. Um. But uh, when a random audience member talks to me about stuff, they're not, like, pleading their case. Or if they are, it'd be really exhausting <laughs> if that was... <laughs> if they, like, were backing it up with a 10,000-word essay each time. Um, but, yeah, it's hard, it's hard not to. Especially, like, it's really easy to. And most people, when reviewing your work, will, like, tag you on it or whatever. Like, it's not like you even have to... Uh, be searching yourself to find them like it's they're all readily <laughs> yeah. available to you I, I think uh, I used to do that when I was sort of like really early on and I stopped doing it because I, I don't I don't think that's good practice <laughs> um the weird thing is like when people write a negative review of somebody's work and then tag them into it yeah I've had that a few times and it's a little <laughs> weird it's like all right like it's cool that you wrote this but I don't know if I like was really important that I see it. <laughs> but, uh, it was. <laughs> yeah, like I was like, I uh, when they tag me on it directly, I wonder like, do you want me to respond to it or something? Like, is that why you tag me, or is it just like the way the internet works? So it's strange. I don't really understand it. I don't think I've ever really written like in what would be considered an out and out negative review because I just don't. I don't have the energy, man. I just, yeah, well, and there's, like, probably enough work that you feel really excited about that you write about very well that maybe you'd prefer to... I assume one would prefer to write about the stuff that you're excited about. Yeah, that, that's always been my thing. But then people sort of criticize you for that because they're like, ooh, unless you write... And I, I guess I can see the point um, because, obviously, writing good things and bad things provides some sort of balance... Whereas if you're always just writing about things that you're excited by, it's sort of like heavily tipped in on one end. Um, but well, yeah. I want to write a super negative review about one of my things to uh, like fulfill the negative review quota for the year. <laughs> you're welcome to. No, I, I actually really, I can't write about your work because I find it really overwhelming. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, like, you were talking about how p different people have different reactions, and I always have, like, a really visceral reaction to your work. And I was trying to think about why that was, um, and I think it's because I sort of, like, associate it with, like, you know, like, the way your shapes are, a lot of your figures and things like that, sort of, like, with microscopic, like, amoeba, like, nerve, nerve cells and... You know, like that whole biology, biology yeah. science sort of thing. Yeah, and it really looks like that to me. And it sort of, it it 
gives me anxiety, but at the same time, it's really beautiful. Um, so oh, good, because that's, you know, that's the same stuff that gives me anxiety. So it tends to be what I try to, I try to that's what yeah, I'm going for. I can't so. do that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. And I just read, like, I read Dressing because I was like, oh, I, I, should, I should read this because I've had it for, like, months, but I've not read it because it, it distresses me. But I also, like, really like it. Um, and I think the only one that I wasn't sort of stressed out by was um, the kissing fish one. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 I love that. It was so amusing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'm stressed out a lot, so I want other people to be stressed out. And that's, <laughs> that's why I draw my comics. Yeah. But yeah, so that's why I never really, I never really write about it because all I would write was like, this is beautiful and it really stressed me out and now I need to like go lie down and think about life. Sure. Well, <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> no, you're supposed to be saying sorry. Or sorry, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I forgive you. Um, but All right. What, what sort of like size do you draw? Because obviously like it all looks quite tiny. But... Yeah, I realized I've been making it I've realized my lettering in particular has getting it's been getting smaller and smaller, which um maybe is like an act of aggression on my part <laughs> or something. But uh, yeah, I uh, I do I usually uh, it changes from thing to thing. Um, and for a while, I would always uh, pencil at the size it was printed at, and then I'd scan it and I ink digitally. Um, but now, more and more frequently, I'll just uh, pencil it. Um, or like pencil and quotation marks, I guess. I'll do the roughs uh, directly on the computer and then just do the, the finished inks on the computer. Um, uh, but yeah, for a while I, I had to do it uh, on paper at first because uh, otherwise I had a bad... I, I couldn't get a good idea of how it would look as a spread or how it would look on the page. Um, I find when I'm inking on the computer, I'm like, you know, zoomed in so far and doing all this detail work that I would get caught up in details, but I'd have a bad idea of how the whole page looked. So for a while it was really necessary for me to draw, to pencil everything at the size it was printed at and lay it all out in front of me. Oh my God. That sounds so, oh, I, just more anxiety really. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so do, do you work like largely digitally now? Yeah. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, you don't uh, really get, you know, like quite often you get like that vibe. You can tell when something's digital, and I don't think you can tell that from your work. Yeah, like I hope it's not. I'm not trying to do anything where I'm trying to like fool uh, a reader, or not yeah. fool is the wrong word, but I'm not using any like uh, any brushes that are supposed to look like a paintbrush or an ink. Mm -hmm. Like, like I'm not trying to do any of that. But um, yeah. so I hope it's never too transparent, and I hope that people can still see like the human hand involved in the work um, and the different ways it falters and stuff. I think it was an easy transition for me because um, before I was inking digitally, I was just um, using, like I tend to just use like a skinny pen line and I, it tends to be a pretty dead pen line. Like I try not to have very much variation in width and to not have it like taper very much. Um, I like it being kind of sterile, um, maybe even cold. So, uh, yeah, switching switching to uh, a digital 
brush was pretty easy because I it was already like that <laughs> um, and I was already working like that. It would have been harder to make the switch if like I inked like Paul Pope or something and had all this yeah. crazy brush work. It would have been like a harder learning curve. So Yeah, yeah I think it, that's sort of like one of the problems that I've always had with digital is that sort of like it loses um, the emotion, if that's the right word. Like it, it can be quite cold, so there's sort of like a remove from it and it's difficult to connect but yeah I either I'm sort of like I'm probably I'm quite rubbish but I can't tell like which bit which comics are like digital and which ones aren't so um yeah and I think the best ones like the artists who work digitally um if you can tell it's not like it's drawing too much attention to itself like you can see it's being used digitally but it's just another tool they're using um I think it gets tricky when someone's like, like I've seen people do it very successfully and people do it really poorly, but the thing where you're um, trying too hard to emulate something that you can normally do on paper, um, yeah. it sometimes makes it look awkward. Like uh, some people use like the digital brushes really well and very elegantly and gracefully, um, but when you're trying to do something, trying to, like, make something digital look like it was done on paper, like, adding crinkly textures, like, things like that, like, it frequently looks awkward. Um, and there are ways to do it where it's not awkward, but it's, like, it frequently looks weird. Yeah. So does this mean that you don't have originals anymore? Yeah, but I, I'm actually kind of weird about my originals, or I don't... Um, I think when I... Because when I first started, uh, even my work on paper was really, um, the originals looked really cruddy. I started out, like, uh, making everything um, in zine form, like, stuff I could just photocopy. So when I started drawing comics, um, even as early as high school, all of my originals would be, like, like, sometimes I'd do the Chester Brown thing where I'd have different things drawn on different panels and I'd piece them together and then I'd, like, uh, I'd fix, I, you know, would go back and fix a bunch of mistakes so it'd be, like, really whited out. And then because it was so gunky, I'd photocopy it and then draw on top of the photocopy. So I never really had clean originals um, to begin with, so I'd actually just throw out most of that work. Oh, and, my uh, God, what? So I'd, I'd actually kind of have a habit of... Um, uh, not holding on to... That's uh, terrible! Yeah, I get a lot of shit for it. But um, I think it like made me less precious about uh, the way I draw comics, and it's made it more about... Um, it's helped me focus on how things would look printed um, by having that, uh, that background working for zines or working for silkscreen um, and posters and photocopies and risographs like it it made me less precious about uh, about the process leading up to the finished page. So I can always think of the finished page as the actual comic. And everything else is just like the weird byproduct that happens getting there. Yeah. But yeah, well, people give me a lot of shit for it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, like at Top of this year, like Peggy and Tom from like B&Q were down and like, I think she was saying that, oh, you know, Michael throws his, Michael throws his stuff away and now we have to save it and take it off him. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, he throws his stuff away. 
Um, yeah, I sent them a bunch of ripped out sketchbook pages in the mail once, and then yeah, they reprinted it as like a giveaway for pre-orders for the anniversary book or something. Um, but yeah, now now like I do have a project I'm working with, but I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it, but I'm working with someone on, um, I normally throw away my sketchbooks, but uh, I am working on something where someone is archiving maybe the more interesting, um, I'm leaving it for him to decide, but the hopefully the more interesting sketchbook pages, and then he's going to uh, put out like a, a little, uh, a little small collection of it, and so um, it won't all be just lost to my trash can. Yeah, it's it's weird because like um, being on like the other end of things, like I guess it's my perception. Because I would think that obviously you're you're like one of like Canada's I guess outstanding cartoonists <laughs> that you would want to keep everything for like historical purposes, and you know there'd probably be in a library or museum somewhere down the road. So just well, like, I don't I don't know about that. But um, yeah, like yeah, it's frustrating for because like I am someone who saves everyone else's stuff. Like, <laughs> uh, so I get, I get that it's frustrating um, for other people to see me like not treat my own archived material with uh, with that respect. Yeah, <laughs> uh, like, but um, this I'm just going to throw uh, away. Yeah, it's like it. It's all those kind of habits that I formed really early on. Like not keeping originals was because I always had disgusting originals that didn't seem worth keeping. And then throwing away sketchbooks started in high school because I, um, I used to use up so many sketchbooks that uh, they would just take up space. And my mom at some point was like, "You kind of have to toss them, or like like there's no there's no way to like actually store all of these." Yeah. Um, so I just like there just became things that I got in the habit of and I could probably work to not be in the habit of doing it, but the payoff of that seems marginal and I get some benefit from doing it this way. Just the, the benefits of, of, yeah, of like, uh, I think it's maybe good for, for me to be, uh, to not be precious about, about some of those things. And, um, yeah, it like keeps me in a good headspace when I when thinking about comics, maybe. Yeah, uh, I was watching that. Um, the f- you know, you did a couple of Forge videos. I don't know who the hell Forge are, but um, oh, yeah. they yeah. were they were good videos. Um, there's like an interview, and then um, there was a short clip um, of your apartment and your basement yeah. apartment. <laughs> yes. Um, and like there were, I was really surprised because I buy quite. Not quite a bit, but, you know, I have, like, my own amount of, like, original art and prints. And lot, lot, a lot of it is still in sort of, like, you know, print tubes and just sort of envelopes and cardboard pieces. But, like, you've got, like, loads of stuff just stuck up on the wall and not in frames and everything. And it's sort of, like, which I guess it sort of ties back to that, like, unpreciousness that you're talking about. Um, yeah. With that, like, um, like, the... There's like a few things that there's one I, there's only one thing I framed um, and it was given to me framed uh, and I have one other piece which I intend to frame uh, and those are both like pieces of original art um, but for a lot of my stuff 
like especially the stuff on my walls most of it's gig posters right. and um, some of them were pur- most of them were purchased uh but when i first started i guess it's just another habit that i picked up in high school because like uh, when i first started getting gig posters um i would uh sometimes i'd like chisel them off of walls and sometimes i'd or, or like they'd sometimes be stapled if they were wheat pasted i would there are a few i'd chisel and then like half of it would get kind of fucked up and I wouldn't be able to take it. Or sometimes I'd ask like uh, some record store if they weren't using it anymore. Um, so when I kept them on my walls in high school, they were all just pinned because that's like, they're gig posters. They're supposed to be kind of crappy look or not like they're, they're supposed to be a little like ephemeral and disposable. Um, and then I just stayed in that habit of like uh and yeah, most of the stuff on my walls is still gig posters. Like, I have some comic strips, and I have some art prints by some friends, but like, uh, yeah, the bulk of it is are, are posters, um, like band posters, and a lot of them are from shows that, yeah, happen like, like, they're all from stuff that happened like 10 or 12 years ago at this point. Like, uh, I haven't, I don't have much wall space anymore, so I haven't accumulated any new ones lately. Yeah, I, I I got sort of inspired by that because I was like, you know what, what am I going to do with all this crap that's just sort of like in tubes and in envelopes? Um, I'd probably end up like keeling over and nobody will ever see it again. <laughs> um, so I've been trying to stick it all up on my wall, but it's sort of like, my walls are like painted and um, and it's sort of like quite thick concrete and it's really difficult finding something that will um, stick to them. Yeah, yeah. If you can't thumbtack them, then I guess you're kind of in a pickle. Yeah, yeah. I've been trying to use like I went to like the stationery store, and this lady was like, "Oh, use glue dots, which are those you know, like when you get um a gift card or something, and there's sort of like that oh, yeah. that there's that blob of glue." Um, and oh, this, yeah. yeah, but then she's like, "Oh yeah, they're really strong," which I guess you know I got fooled because she just had to sell it to me. Um, yeah. and uh, I brought them home and they're not very strong at all <laughs> you know what might not you, might, you know what might not be the worst is uh, um, looking into different types of uh, archival tape like um, actually from the show in Ottawa we had to use like two different types of archival tape um uh, to not damage the backs of the artwork too much because we couldn't frame and hang them. We had to stick them to the wall and then fasten, fasten uh, plexiglass onto them. Right. But you can get, like, double-sided tape that will stick to the wall, um, but then also not completely destroy the print when you peel it off if you need to move it or whatever. Yeah, I guess that that's essentially what the glue dots are supposed to do because they don't sort of, like, ruin the paper or the card that you're using, but they yeah. also don't ruin the wall or the pin um but they're fine for like flimsier stuff but for like heavy you know grain posters they just really yeah and things keep on falling down during the night <laughs> which is not good but yeah so i'm gonna have to yeah um poster talk i don't i don't know man i i have to sort something out but i have no idea uh yeah oh. I wanted to ask you something, um, like, I was listening to, oh, again, like, Robin's, the first interview that Robin did, and, like, you were talking about using colour, I think you still used to work in 
black and white a lot at that stage. Um, um, so I was just wondering, like, if you could talk a little bit, like, because obviously you work a lot in colour now, and I think it's sort of like one of the defining things of your work. Um, like, it brings a lot to, like, obviously the tone and the way you read things um, in your comics. Um, so how do you feel about it now? Um, yeah, I like using it. I try to be sparing about it. Uh, Ant Colony was a big shift for me. Um, I realized when I started Ant Colony that a lot, I would use the same color schemes a lot. So I intentionally made every installment of Ant Colony have a different color scheme. And at some point, I think, like, I came close to repeating myself and there was some overlap. But for the most part, it's like, it should be a different set of colors each time. Right. Um, right. So it like made me widen my palette a little bit. And then after I finished Ant Colony, I got so sick of using color that I tried to go back to black and white for a while. Um, and now I, I uh, right now I've been back on a color kick, but I try to be um, pretty thoughtful about it, I guess. Um, I never want to do something that's color if I could evoke the same tone in black and white. Yeah. Um, uh, but lately the colors help me. I've been sort of, right now I'm working on the, the thing I'm doing for Patreon and um, a few other recent things like my Frontier issue. Uh, I've been doing, uh, I've been using more minimal lines and designs and um, uh, the colors help me keep things dense looking without actually having a density of line work. So it's still loud and busy because the colors are loud and busy. Yeah. Um, but it lets me keep my lines very simple, uh, which might just also mean I'm getting lazier. But hopefully I'm working towards something uh, with that. Yeah, I think it's sort of like, you know, like um, in the Frontier issue and in First Year Healthy as well, like, um, when you use white backgrounds, um, it's sort of, it's more calming. <laughs> I'm just, I just have a really tense relationship with your work. Um, yeah. Well, uh, it, it, I want to, you know, when I first started, I wanted everything to be as busy and as dense as possible. Yeah. And now I want it to, like, when it is busy and dense, I want it to count. And it counts more if I have breathing room. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, sometimes mean white spaces, sometimes it means less busy compositions than I used to. Uh, like Ant Colony, I was intentionally making each thing, like, just so dense. Like, there's a lot of tiny lines, and there's a lot of very loud colors, and a lot of text, and each page has, like, or each installment has, like, 18 panels jammed into it. And uh, uh, since then, I'm... Uh, I might go back to something like that dense again, but right now I'm enjoying uh, having like a maybe a gentler rhythm to some of my stories. Yeah, I mean, I think like on my end, anyway, the way I read it, it's sort of um, it allows the work to breathe more, um, and it allows like the reader to sort of think and infer more because like when I see something that's really densely coloured and really full on. Um, and obviously it evokes its own tone and it's it's got its own um, sort of whatever it's saying. But it's just, I guess there's sort of like less room for you to sort of 
because it's so specifically a thing. Um, yeah. Whereas when when there's sort of like a white background or it is sort of like less busier, um, I think it just sort of like it you can interact a little bit more with with the thing. Um, and yeah, that's that's definitely that's definitely like the idea is to um, like sometimes I want something to be intentionally uninviting, and right now I'm going for a different. At least for the stories I'm working on this year and probably next, uh, I'm going for a, a different tone, maybe. Yeah. Um, you were saying about Pilkin. Um, did you say that up this year? Because I remember you saying that you were going to do it for like six months and then see how it goes. And it just seems like it's um, this year seems to have like gone on forever. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was just wondering how that's gone for you. Uh, everything I do just seems to go on forever. No, no, I just meant uh, the year. I didn't mean your picture. <laughs> I was just like, 2015 been such a shit year, but yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, um, uh, yeah, I started it, I think, December. Right now, I think I'm on my 12th month. So it's, it's worked out well. Like, uh, I, I liked it and I wanted to keep going. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh. Uh, yeah, it's been working out really well for me. I'm, I'm very grateful that people are, um, hopefully into it. And if they're not into it, I'm still at least getting their money. So they're, <laughs> they're either into it or they're like masochists or something. So I, I'm really bad because I, I sort of back it and I back other people, but I never read the updates. Um, because yeah, I have that too with like a lot of the people I back where I don't always keep track of like new updates. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't like uh, generally, it's just sort of, I, I mean, you get, you get, you can set up an email where you get an email when, whenever somebody posts something, but I'm just so lazy, I can't even bother clicking through. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny, I don't actually read many online comics myself. I tend to wait for a print iteration, um, just because that happens to be my preferences yeah. for a printed book um but yeah i'm grateful that's not everybody's preference so do you have sort of like a do you have a quota that you try to meet like do you, do you post something each month or is it fortnightly or yeah i do um one story each month and i think uh initially i was like it has to be at least 12 pages a month but i've been playing that fast and loose lately sometimes it'll be 10 pages Sometimes it'll be like two eight-page installments. Some so like, uh, but I, I do try to do something um, at least once a month, and for it to uh, even if it's like a lot more pages or a little less pages uh, to make it feel substantial. Um, but yeah, I, I, what I really like about it is that it's I get to it can kind of be whatever I want and. Um, for a while, I was just doing short stories, and then I didn't want to... I, I had done so many in a row that were short stories that... Um, and because they're all of a still sort of a similar length, I didn't want to start repeating myself too much. So then, now, since then, I've switched on to... Uh, I, I started serializing a graphic novel on there. Um, but I can... I like that it can be whatever I want. Like, I wanted a prose story... Um, while I'm serializing the graphic novel, some months I might interrupt it just to do a self-contained short again. Um, like in, I, I'm planning to release something on Christmas that's just going to be its own thing. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you do that, like, annual Christmas comic. 
Yeah, I do like, yeah, I have like my little holiday season comic every year. And last year I, I did like, uh, last year I had one in Lucky Peach and then I did one on the 25th. And like, there have been years where I've done multiple, multiple Christmas comics or like. Yeah, I was going to ask you about like your obsession with Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I don't actually celebrate Christmas. Like my, my Christmas, I'm usually alone in my basement, which is like my preference actually. Um, <laughs> but, uh. It's uh, I it started around maybe six or seven years ago. I did a comic called SM, which was like a, a horror comic um, that had a snowman, and I released it. Like my idea was like, oh cool, I'll do it in time, in time for Christmas. And then since then, I've just sort of made it uh, an annual tradition. So I like there was one ant colony that was kind of Christmas themed and I think in the book it is no longer clear but when I initially put it up on like serialized it online it was on Christmas Day and my Sticks Angelica webcomic had like a very lengthy Christmas arc that nobody liked I did a Christmas comic with Mickey Zakili and Patrick Kyle and yeah it's just like I like traditions and this has become my weird annual tradition um I was going to ask you, because you did a lot of shows this year. Um, I think you went to Japan, right? I did go to Japan, yeah. Yeah, um, and obviously you came here a couple of times. Uh, so I was just going to ask you about that, like, you know, about shows, because I have been thinking a lot about, for no reason in particular, um, I think we talked about this briefly as well at some point, mm-hmm. um, just about comic shows and what people get out of them. Um, and, like, because there are so many shows now, and I just find it difficult to sort of like work out exactly what it is that I financial circumstances going to a show is still time away from either making money at your day job or drawing comics. Um, and sometimes it's a worthwhile trade off, and sometimes it might not be. Um, and a lot of the times, like you're kind of gambling even on whether you're not going to, uh, whether you're going to like break even on a bus ticket or a plane ticket from yeah. selling. Um, so yeah, like I do wonder how sustainable it is. I think the value of having so many small shows now, uh, is that they can focus on a more local scene. So I, I now trying to think of them a little differently, um, as things I don't feel obligated to go to each that like you know like i it's too much to do line work and do cake and do write and do thought bubble and all these things so the value of them seems to be like that you can focus on a on a local scene at a local show um which seems maybe more important than having a bunch of out of town artists who uh are all taking huge financial gambles to make the trip. Yeah. I think uh, one of the things is sort of like, well, one of the things that here in the UK, anyway, I think it's sort of like a problem with identity, um, that the mm. strong the strong shows, probably like you're saying, like the local shows, um, the strong shows are the ones that sort of like know what they want and what they're doing. Like... Elka, for example, is obviously um, run by No Brow, and they have like a, a very specific aesthetic, um, like the focus on like a particular kind of like graphic 
um, uh, and that sort of thing, which everybody may not like, but it 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 sort of knows what it is. Um, and I think there are a few shows that are like that. A lot of it is just sort of like um, just <laughs> random crap, um, sort of jumbled together, and it doesn't. There's there's sort of like just no focus to it. I think. Yeah, like that. I I've only been to Ape once, and it was like one of the most terrible conventions I'd ever been to because it was like that. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, like T uh, Caf is unique because it's so large, and that's one of the only shows I can think of that does pull off the something for everyone thing. Where like the idea with T Caf is almost someone off the street could walk in. And no matter what their interests are, probably find a comic that might suit them. But I think the benefit of a lot, of, uh, I think the strength of a lot of other shows is that, yeah, they are, they do represent a certain aesthetic or a certain mandate. Like I, I definitely think Cake has its own uh, very unique and very specific vibe that's specific to Chicago and the zine community that's come out of there. And it, that's very different from something like line work in Portland or yeah, very different from um, the no brow show. Uh, yeah. And like it's shows get tripped up if they do try to be something for everyone, but they're not large enough to actually facilitate that, I guess. How is Japan though? Have you ever been before? Um, I went when I was, uh, 12 um right. to meet some family over there so this is my first time as an adult um uh yeah it was an amazing trip it was like uh it was run by uh or organized by tcaf um so and uh yeah i got to go with uh like a lot of my closest friends jeanette lapalm was there jillian tamaki was there ryan sands robin nishio um in addition to all the wonderful people from tcaf and uh yeah it was really cool like i bought a lot of books and i ate a lot of really good food <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, always, I've always really wanted to go over then i because it just seems like one of those countries you know like um that you get a really different experience from i guess mm -hmm. like a lot of countries you can sort of go to and have um well in europe anyway and i guess even if like if you travel from england to canada or america north america at least it's sort of you know, everybody speaks English and the culture is very sort of, it's not that different. Yeah. Um, and I always prefer going to places where you are going to get like a really different vibe and a different experience. And I really want to go because it just looks so amazing and so cool. Um, it but, was. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah, it was very different, which I definitely think was one of the benefits of, of going too. Because, um. Yeah, even though I was there when I was young, I don't remember a lot of details from it. So, yeah, it was like a, uh, yeah, I was coming in a little blind, like uh, on on what it would be like, which I think is maybe a good place to be. Yeah, also, but the thing that I was thinking that if you go to like, for example, if I went to a show in Japan, but everything would be in Japanese, so I don't know like how much I would get out of it. Um, do you think that's sort of like still a factor or do you think you could enjoy it like even if you didn't really maybe you wouldn't enjoy it more <laughs> because you yeah. didn't really know what was going on 
Well, we did, we did do two shows there. Our right. trip was bookended by the Kai Gai Manga Festival, um, uh, which I guess specialized in doujin. Um, and then there was uh, the, oh, what was it called? Big uh, Design Festo, which um, I guess is more akin to a craft fair, except like insanely huge. It was like the largest craft fair you've ever seen. And in both cases, like, uh, um, uh, I found a lot of interesting work. Um, there's obviously a lot that, uh, like, I can't read Japanese. So there's uh, everything I did by I can't read anyway. And there's definitely a lot of work that was probably interesting, but um, I wouldn't even like, didn't have that initial, like, aesthetic pull uh, that, that the work I did pick up had um, that I missed. But, yeah, that definitely made it interesting. It also, what was kind of interesting is, like, how um, at the Kai Gai Festival, the, the, the one that um, had more, like, that, that had an explicit comics focus, uh, it was interesting, just, like, uh, the few people who did buy my books there because um uh most of them didn't speak english so they're i was kind of curious like yeah are is there going to be any audience making the same kind of weird gamble on one of my comics that they can't understand but maybe has some sort of visual pull for them um so yeah it, it was definitely uh worthwhile like it i wouldn't recommend going as an English artist if you want to make a ton of sales maybe but uh it was super it was super interesting and was it almost made me more it definitely made me more grateful for the for the readers I did get there yeah I sort of have a I try to have a line where I don't buy anything in a language that I don't understand because I just think I already spend so much money on on books um, and like increasingly less space and if I cross that line there's sort of no coming back <laughs> and just start buying every, anything that looks interesting in, in, in various languages oh, it'll just be a yeah, nightmare I definitely have that problem um, because yeah like I'm lucky enough that the Beguiling stocks a ton of European comics and a ton of Japanese comics um, and I buy a lot of them and I can't read any of them um so yeah it's definitely uh it definitely becomes a problem where, where do you put them all just in well yeah, just are they all there in the basement all in the basement yeah last time i moved was because i ran out of shelf space so have you still got all those milk crates i still have all the milk crates oh yeah i did the shelf fee for yeah yeah, uh, yeah of course yeah so could... they're still all there <laughs> It's such an amazing system, but I could never have it. <laughs> yeah, it's um. But it's so unique. It's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's it just came out of um not being able to afford actual shelves, but being around a lot of milk crates. Uh, so yeah. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is like, which comic have you worked on that you found like to be most personally satis uh, satisfying? Sorry. Uh, that's interesting. Um, drawing comics can be so frustrating that it's like, it's 
I always think like I never have a feeling when I finish a comic of like relief or pride or satisfaction. It's kind of it's like usually nothing. Well, it's like usually immediately like regret and doubt and fear or whatever. But um, I do. I'm fairly sure, certain I get like some sort of like long term benefit from it, which is why I do all of it. Um, and if I look back, probably probably Ant Colony. Like it's, I look back and I see a lot of mistakes and things that I wouldn't do today, um, storytelling choices and art choices. And but uh, it's like my longest work, and um, I don't think I realized how large the scope of the story would. I definitely didn't realize how large the scope of the story would be when I started. So it's when I look at it now, it's like. Um, for this weird experiment that I maybe should have planned out more than I did, I get to look at it and think, like, what a weird kind of happy accident that this turned out to be a book and not just a pile of unrelated strips. So, yeah. But it's nice because it's nice that you have at least positive feelings towards it because so many artists and people, they're just like, Oh, I can't look. I don't look back. Once something's made, that's it. You know, I can't look back. It makes me cringe, or it's just all terrible. Um, but I think, obviously, you know, you do grow and you do improve. Um, and like looking back and being pleased with things is, I think, it's still nice. And you know, I guess even rewarding in a sense because if you don't look back, you don't realize how much you know you've grown and improved. Yeah, and I think also if you don't look back enough, you, like, I definitely have found myself repeating myself, um, and, like, looking back and looking back both positively and negatively at old work, like, like I, I do find I need some distance from it before I do, like, um, and Anne Colony is maybe, like, exactly the amount of distance, like, I, I think I finished that three years ago, so maybe three years is the magic number to be able to, like, look back and not just cringe at everything. Um, I also think there's a thing in cartooning where it's like, and I'm, I'm definitely very guilty about like of this, and it's something I try to change where um, you're just always so hard on yourself, and it's almost like in vogue to be hard on yourself um, and to like hate all your work and not take a compliment or see anything positive about it and uh, it almost seems related, and another thing I'm guilty of is like, like, uh, it seems related to like wanting to like, like you have to draw 19 hours a day, or not a real cartoonist, and you have to hate everything you do. And um, I'm trying to like be a little bit more reasonable about those tendencies. I think it has like some romantic idea of like the proper amount of self-loathing you have to feel in order to call yourself a cartoonist, and it seems silly because. Um, uh, yeah, there's like, uh, so hopefully I just have like the, the healthy amount of self-loathing and not like a, a crazy amount. Yeah, it's interesting because it's sort of like all these sort of older ideas and then you see sort of like a cultural shift um, because it's sort of like more like, I guess I can say this now because I'm super old, <laughs> um, younger, younger people um, get into comics and they don't, I guess... Like, even I don't know much about, like, the history of, like, comics or, you know, I'm not into, like, Robert Crumb or that sort of shit. I don't really 
particularly into Daniel Clouds or, you know, these people. Um, uh, and it's just sort of changing, but people are sort of super hold on to that, those ideas and, you know, the sort of like validity of it and that if you don't ascribe to this, then, you know, you're not part of it. Which I'm really glad that's sort of hopefully dying out. But yeah, yeah. Like, it seems exciting that right now you can. Like, I feel like I, I maybe when I started out, I was in a similar kind of like weird middle micro generation where, um, you know, like I grew up with the internet and I grew up like the, um, Chester Brown and Seth and Dan Klaus, like, were all huge inspirations to me, and still are, but I also had access to all these other things, too. Like, I was also reading horror manga, and um, I was, like, a, I was reading, like, a pretty wide variety of things. Um, but I still had all these hang-ups, like, it, I always think of it, like, when I was coming up, it felt like I needed to have an opinion on... Um, on, like you said, Robert Crumb, for instance, is like, uh, uh, it was a thing where it's like, whether you like him or not, like, you have to have an opinion on this, like, huge figure because he's there and he's around and he's looming over you. And it seems like now, um, most of the younger cartoonists I meet, like, like, haven't really, if, if you, you know, if like, you see Robert Crumb maybe, and maybe the work speaks to you, or maybe it doesn't, but if it doesn't, it's like a lot of cartoonists who don't think of him either way. It'd be like having an opinion on a Doritos flavor or something. Um, yeah. Because you get to, right now, like, you get to pick your own canon. So, like, maybe your canon is not, like, not even related to to some of these other figures, and it your canon can be, like, yeah, like, it... it Coming up, it seems like I have to have an opinion on like Milton Kniff and stuff. Like, and it's like I'm, it just did work that didn't speak to me at all. Um, work that I didn't think of that negatively, but the work that I just blanked on. And now it's like maybe someone who's coming up, their canon is like Katsuo Mezu, Steve Wolfhard, and Lala Albert or something. And that seems really cool and exciting. But I think even like the notion of canon is just sort of like it's. It just seems dumb because, like, it's changing all the time. Um, yeah. And to have, like, the idea of, oh, these are, like, you know, six cartoonists or whatever that who will never shift and this is, like, the set-in-stone place in history. It just, it seems, it seems so dumb. Why would you have that? Because it's, I don't know, like, the, the whole the whole purpose of like life itself, which sounds really pretentious, but is that we evolve, right? Um, we grow and like we change. And then it seems really weird that you would put certain texts or certain authors in place and say, Oh, you must know these people or you must learn about these uh and um to think that, you know, art doesn't change or doesn't move and doesn't evolve, it just seems at odds with the whole notion of art itself. Yeah, and it, it, especially in comics, where I feel like the history of comics isn't a bunch of, like, there are standout figures, but it, it, the history of comics isn't really in a bunch of standout figures. It's in all these odd little corners, and I think that's what 
appeals to um, most people who read comics is that it's this, you know, like there's like a that weird kind of collecting-y record crate digging aspect to reading comics where you're looking at a pile of random zines you got and you're like looking for all these odd little interesting glimmers of a thing. Um, and that's like the, like some, some zine that maybe somebody made and they didn't uh, ever make like one big standout graphic novel, but that zine is amazing. And that zine inspired like 20 kids. And most people can think of um, comics like that, even in superhero comics, like the, 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 the fun of reading superhero comics is like, you know, you're looking at a lot of work that's going to be kind of samey, but it makes the little gem that's different or maybe a little weirder than it should be or uh, all the more precious. Um, and yeah, there's like, like comics is, has this wonderful history of artists who've done uh, small, modest, but very interesting or beautiful or bold work. And yeah, it was just in some anthology or some mini comic. Do, do you believe in sort of like um, one of the things that I've been thinking about is I know like we're talking about it being I guess like a more kinder time um, for want of a better word um, but you know when things people say oh this is good or this is bad um, and then there's a third idea of like well you might not like this but somebody can find some sort of meaning in it does that mean like you can never say something is good or something is bad no, because I mean, like... Because I feel like you should be able to say, yeah, this is crap, because sometimes... I mean, you can't yeah, say it, but, like, to be... You know, like, to have a, like... I don't know whether you can have, like, a set of rules and say, like, you know, this is... Yeah, we can all agree this is, like, a rubbish book, or... Yeah, like, I think if... If... I think it makes sense that, like, if... Someone writes, this is garbage... Like, they don't have to qualify that by saying, in my opinion, this is garbage, and, like, somebody else might get something else from it, and all this. Like, they don't have to... It's a, it's assumed that maybe someone would disagree with them. Yeah. So, yeah. like, yeah, I think it's fine to say, like, this is garbage, if that's what you think, you know? Like, uh, that seems pretty reasonable. It'd be unreasonable to... It, it's assumed that it's their opinion and it's like maybe a thought out opinion or not, but it'd be pretty unreasonable to ask everybody to say, in my opinion, this is garbage or in my opinion, this is great. Like that'd be, it's a, yeah, it seems, it seems assumed that that's the case. Yeah. I guess even that, it's just like sometimes when you see like, um, you know, you get a lot of op-eds on the internet and um, you, you'll see like a really, I don't know, something really rubbish and, like, somebody would just sort of going really academically into it. Oh, but it was actually about this and it's actually... And it's like, no, it was just rubbish. Can we please all yeah. agree it was just crap? <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, sometimes I just... I, I, I guess it's just me. I get really frustrated by that because I just think, no, <laughs> I'm right and that, 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 was, that was really bad and stop talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it becomes hard to just feel like you can ignore things as much on the internet now, too, because uh, it's just constantly being blared at you as well. 
like uh, they make it they make it harder to just dismiss something that yeah you think is crap or you're uninterested in generally because it's uh it can it can sometimes feel like a constant stream of it i guess okay um i am gonna let you go but i have like a quick fire round for you um, sure it's like fun questions um well i not really fun but sort of fun um <laughs> i'll be the judge of what's fun okay okay fine um this like this is the most important question you've probably ever been asked, um, and you will have to explain your reasoning. Vin Diesel or The Rock? Well, I I like The Rock more, what? but very recently I watched all the Fast and the Furious movies, which I hadn't seen any of, and then I watched all of them in a row. You watched um, like without break. Well, like I probably had like a day. But I like watched one a day. Yeah, oh, right. it wasn't like I, I like booked <laughs> off, I was, like field all my calls for twenty four hours. Well, that would have been this. cool. Yeah, that that would have been cool or something. <laughs> but I never got the appeal of Vin Diesel before, and then I saw well because like I I had just like I think the only other Vin Diesel movie I'd seen was like Triple X. Oh my god! Uh, That's yeah. You should watch him um, Pitch Black. Which is really, really good. I have never seen Pitch Black, and my friend Merritt was explaining it to me, and I'm very curious because I know his superpower is that like he can see at night. Yeah, it's not really a superpower. Superpower. Um, It's sort of like he was in like prison, and they did something to his eyes. (laughs) I just I like even worse. (laughs) I like the idea of like a superpower who has a superpower that's like very very situational like it is only occasionally helpful um yeah. uh but yeah like so I, I i never got the appeal of vin diesel and then i saw him in those movies and i was like oh i'm kind of like attracted to vin diesel like i get his i now understand that he has like uh a warmth and a sexual charisma yeah great voice he has a very good voice. I, I'm now charmed by Vin Diesel. But before, um, before it would be like snap answer the rock, and now it's like, oh, I get it. Vin Diesel is like uh, is good too. They're both they're both good. No, you can't go with ways. both. You have to go with one. So it's Vin Diesel. Uh, I think I still pick the rock. No, that's the wrong answer. I was once I was once an extra on a movie, and there are these two twins who are like PAs there. Right. Somebody told me they were cousins of The Rock, and they could both do like the eyebrow thing. Right. It was pretty. Did, it was did you see very, this happen? Well, I, I watched them do the eyebrow thing. Okay. I believe that they they look like they could be cousins of The Rock. Okay. Yeah, but you should definitely watch Pitch Black. I think. Um... I watched it while I was in college, um, and we were doing um, a sci-fi module in my media studies class, which you should never admit that you studied media studies. Um, but um, yeah, that's where I watched it, and it's actually really excellent. Um, it's quite underrated. I, I don't know. It gets called a cult movie quite a lot, which um, I don't know what the inference there. <laughs> But it's really good, and then it has sort of like a really weird sequel, The Chronicles of Riddick, um, where it has like Judy Dench and Carl Urban and all these 
and it just went in a totally different direction to the first one, which is sort of like um, space horror, a little bit like Alien. Um, okay. But and then it's funny because this is uh, uh, this is the second podcast I've been on where I've been recommended. Yeah, like uh, I did a podcast with my friend Merritt, and then she recommended I also watch the Riddick movies. <laughs> so I've now I've now been like publicly publicly recommended. The Chronicles of Riddick and Pitch Black. Yeah, I don't know that I would recommend the second one, but um, I watched it anyway because Vin Diesel was in it. Um, and it's just totally different. It's sort of like bonkers that you know you would go from that to that. Um, but yeah, it's worth a watch. And the third one, there's a third one, and then that's just whatever. But and yeah. in each movie, I assume he like sees in the dark a lot. Um, like actually, does his superpower come up all the time? Like, where it's, like, the power goes out in Riddick. Like, I know in Pitch Black, like, they're all on a, a planet with no sun or something. But um, no, no, no. It, there, 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 like, there is, there... There's more than one sun, actually, but there's sort of, like, a, an eclipse that happens once every 24 years. And, okay. And the day they crash, Michael, is the day that that eclipse occurs. And when the eclipse occurs, all the weird aliens come out because the weird aliens do not like the light, you see. So they only like the dark, which means they're in a fuckload of trouble. Yeah, and it's only Riddick. Yeah, I just like the idea. There should be a whole team full of people who have only situationally helpful superpowers like that. (laughs) Okay. Um, What did you think of the Fast and Furious movies? Which one was your favorite? I really liked all of them. I think... This, even, even Tokyo this, Drift. This, well, here's a controversial opinion. Tokyo Drift was actually my favorite, um, <laughs> which might contradict what I'm about to say about what I like about all of them. I like that it's like uh, I didn't expect it to be like uh, a movie franchise that's like all about um, uh, families yeah. and families like learning how to. I've thought a lot about this. Clearly, it's like, oh, here's a. It's a movie about a bunch of people who care about each other and in the early installments they don't know how to take care of each other yet and then as the series goes on they all learn how to yeah how to take care of themselves and take care of each other and care for each other which felt like uh it's like the arc that people go through like from their early 20s onward is like they're at first not equipped to to be there for other people so I've clearly thought about this a lot. And but then even though like only one cast member is retained from Tokyo Drift, uh that's still my favorite. Okay. Yeah. I like it. It's they're quite affirming. Um yeah, they're definitely warm and you know it's about family cuz like Vin Diesel says that about six times each movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the family every yeah. But I think I re- I've given the movies clearly. I've given the movies a lot of thought. No, I really, I really like, I really like those. Those were that was a good bunch of movies. What's also weird is that I watched them in reverse chronological order. Oh, why? I don't know. Well, I do that with TV series sometimes. If somebody tells me, you know, when someone's like, you should watch like, uh, you should watch The Wire, or you should watch like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and they're like, yeah, the first season's pretty bad. But it like gets really good, like season two. It's like all worth it. And I think like, well, I don't want to like 
start out watching it while it's bad. Like, I want to watch it when it's good, and then I can work my way back to the bad parts, I guess. But that's just watching the story backwards. I'm not saying it's, like, a rational way to do it, uh-huh. but that's, that's how I do it. <laughs> I think you need to get out of that basement, Michael. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I think. Um, okay, next question. Alien or Predator? Uh, alien. Oh, okay. That is the yeah. correct answer. Um, yeah. Tintin or Asterix? Uh, Tintin. Oh, okay. I yeah. never really... I feel like Asterix... Like, uh, there's all these, like, very, spe- like, specific... Um, political and historical things in it that, like, uh, I don't have the context for, but I'm sure I'd find hilarious if I did or something. So, yeah, Tintin. Yeah, I think I read an article recently. Um, I think the guy wrote exactly that. Um, he was saying the reason it's sort of never taken off in America is because um, the politics of it are very specific to Europe. Yeah. Um, so, which is why, essentially, it hasn't... But. I mean, I am European, I guess, um, and I prefer Tintin. I just think it's it's just better. Um, yeah. Also, aesthetically, Asterix does, like, nothing for me. But... Yeah, yeah, the art is just amazing in Tintin. Um, and that was, I think, my last question was a really boring one, which is favourite food? Um, oh, I don't know. Probably just, like... Rice? Is that a boring answer? <laughs> rice is my favorite food. Just sort of like boiled rice or? Oh yeah, but like preferably I have stuff on it. Yeah, but, but... That, that can't be your favorite food because you don't eat it on its own. So it's not really rice, is it? That's. But rice is like the, the constant. The topping mm. changes. Sometimes it's kimchi. Sometimes it's a fried egg. But the rice is always there for me. No matter what I do, it's always it's a backbone. <laughs> I, I'm gonna let you have that one. Um, but okay, yeah. I I mean I would say potatoes. So I guess it's you know. Yeah, I, potatoes I, I, is as dull a choice as rice. I think. Yeah. Yeah, we I both have all favorite foods. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I'll let you go. Um, thank you for doing this. It's been oh. a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for interviewing. No, no problem. Um, Okay, cool. All